chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're continuing in our series on the book of Acts. We are excited to be in the series on the book of Acts because in this, in this series we are learning all about what does it look like for the church to be about the mission that God has called us to. And what a great privilege for us as a church is we have rebooted our mission in the last year or two and, and we're seeing what does it look like for the church to go out as God continues his plan unhindered? What does it look like for Jesus to expand his church through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit? And what an appropriate thing for us to focus on as, as we're focusing on carrying out the gospel message on our mission to, to go and make disciples in Greenville. Well, turn to Acts chapter 8. Um, before we begin, I just wanted to do a few things. One is I wanted to apologize to, to those who are already gone. might be wondering what I'm talking about, but uh, I missed it. Last week, my wife encouraged me to, to pray for and send off those who were going to college, and I thought, well, I'll get to it next week, not realizing the timing, and a lot of students left. So um, if you are a parent or relative of those students, I am sorry we didn't do that last week. We want to take an opportunity to do it this week at the end of the service, though. So if you are a departing student and you are going back to school, going to college, or maybe going off for the first time, we want to take some time to pray for you at the end of the service. So if you would go ahead and come up at the end of the service, and then if I'd ask all of our leaders to, to come up as well, and we'd like to take an opportunity to, to send you out, because you're going out into a mission field. You're going out to proclaim the good news to be light in, in dark places. So we want to pray for you and take an opportunity to send you out as a part of our church. And then I think, I know at least Abigail Easton, is, we're going to come up here and do that. And, I, and if anybody else is a part of that, we would love to send you off as well. I want to welcome back a couple people this morning who are here for just today. Um, one is a newly commissioned officer, Lieutenant Seth Wartak. Welcome. And then we have our, 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 uh, our very own Josh Randolph back to celebrate, and we're so glad to have you too. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 9 through 24. Last week we saw how the Word of God continued and spread despite persecution, and in fact, God used persecution to spread the word. And people, instead of being worried about what they would do and where they would go, the people of God, the church, were so affected by the good news that wherever they went, it said, they spread the good news. And so Acts 8, 8 ends with, and there was joy in the city. So let's begin reading God's word in Acts 8, chapter, verses 9 through 24. This is God's holy, inspired word. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But... When they believed Philip as he preached good news 
about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon said, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every part of your word. Thank you, Lord, that accounts like this are for our instruction, for our good, for us to see what does it look like to carry out the gospel in foreign, in hostile areas? What does it look like to carry out the gospel in the face of seemingly great powers against the gospel? What does it look like for people to truly believe in you? And God, thank you that you give us your word to instruct us and train us and to equip us. I pray that you would enliven our hearts this morning, that you would open up our eyes that we might behold you. And Lord, I pray that through this we might have more passion for you, Jesus. And God, I pray that as a church our passion would not be in any other place than in in you alone. May we not be passionate about ourselves and money or power or what we can accumulate. May we be passionate about you, Jesus, and that you've changed our lives. And would you rekindle that that fire in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find ourselves still looking at the early days of the church and The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was just beginning to spread into difficult areas. It was going in the places where the the good news had never gone before. The gospel had not broken out of Samaria until persecution came. I mean, out of Jerusalem until persecution came, and now it's in Samaria. And the church is scattered and carrying out the mission that Jesus had called them to. If you remember, he prophesied about it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, And you will receive power and when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Luke's now writing to a group of people who were facing opposition. The people who have received this letter is probably around 64 AD. They are facing opposition. It's easy in a generation or two to forget 
the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's easy in a generation or two to lose hope, to lose faith, to lose confidence in the good news. I think it's true for us as well. It's easy for us in a generation or after 10 or 11 years of it as a church to lose confidence in the good news that we carry. And so Luke's writing this account for a reason. He selected this account very specifically. He could have selected hundreds of different accounts of, of how the gospel was exploding and how the gospel was performing great change in people's lives. He could have selected lots of accounts, but he didn't want to gloss over the challenges that they faced. He didn't want to gloss over the obstacles that they faced, and that's for a very good reason. It was for the instruction of the people he's writing to, and it's for our instruction as well. We don't ignore that we live in difficult places. Luke was not ignoring that they were encountering difficulties, that the early church at the outset was encountering difficulties, and that the church in 60-something A.D. was about to encounter more severe difficulties and persecution. It's good for us to know because we don't gloss over the fact that we encounter difficulties as the good news spreads, that we encounter opposition, that we might be intimidated by seemingly great powers. We might be intimidated by persuasive people who speak out against the good news. And so we have this account in Acts for them but for us. We need to be reminded that we face this challenge of spreading the good news. But we face this challenge with the good news that is more powerful than anything else. We can forget that we carry the most powerful message in the entire world. We can forget that we have a God who is more powerful than any foe, any adversary, any threat. And that's the gospel, and that's what we find here in this passage, this good news that we're, we're given as disciples of Jesus Christ is that we've been given a powerful gospel, powerful good news. In this passage, you can see that they face some, some opposition in the form of mysticism or magic or, or even demonic forces. They, they face all kinds of challenges and ethnic divides, and that's not unfamiliar to us today, is it? In the last week or two, we've been seeing about different kinds of ethnic divides. And, and yet, we've been given hope that the good news comes to reconcile whatever kind of ethnic divide, whatever kind of circumstance we see happening. We can see in verses 9 to 13, Luke is, is giving us some confidence in, our, in the good news that we've been given. And he, he shows us that the good news of Jesus is more powerful than any mystical threat. The good news is more powerful than any kind of magic, any kind of sorcery, any kind of demonic power that we might encounter that, that they encountered. Christians in that day, they were facing the threat of taking the message about Jesus to those who were deluded and deceived by magic, and they, they claimed to have great powers of sorcery. Can you imagine when I read the passage earlier, I was thinking, oh my goodness, the, the hubris of, of Simon to say that he, he was the great power of God. And oh, God's mercy that he didn't strike him down immediately. We might not experience the threat of magic to delude and deceive those we encounter, but we do face the, the real threat of people being deceived and, and led astray by, by a mystical or magical way of thinking. And we should not be thwarted. We should not be discouraged from carrying the good news that we have, whether we face those who are deceived by mystical thinking or demonic influence. 
Because we can see that the good news is more powerful than any threat. Philip was preaching the good news in Samaria. It says he encountered a man named Simon, and he must have been pretty intimidating to some. Look in verse 9. It tells us, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. In verse 10, it tells us they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. Simon claimed to be somebody great. I don't know in that day if they had traveling magicians like we have or magicians putting on shows in the same way, but today every, every few years there's a new magician trying to be the greatest and claiming to the greatest magician ever. Years ago when I was growing up, there was a guy named David Copperfield. Apparently he's still around and performing And then later it was guys like David Blaine or Chris Angel and and, and others like that who all claim to be great because of the feats they perform and the things that they do. Well, Simon was, was in that day really greater than Chris Angel or David Copperfield. He was more impressive. Not only was he practicing magic or illusion or deceiving people that way, he was also a sorcerer. We know from accounts of the early church that that he practiced the dark arts of sorcery, and that it wasn't just illusion alone, he was also being aided and influenced by demonic forces. And so there was real spiritual activity happening. And it wasn't just the young that were easily swayed to think Simon was great. It wasn't just the poor, uneducated, thought he was great because they didn't know better. It says they all paid attention from the least to the greatest, and they attributed his great power to God. They said, this, this man is the power of God that is called great. It must have been intimidating to Philip. As Philip's encountering these people, as he's, as he's facing Simon and he's talking to them, he must have wondered, what would he say? Obviously, Simon was a, a good public speaker. He was probably convincing. He had a lot of power. He was very convincing to those around him. And yet, Philip confronts him. And those who followed him with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is more powerful than any power that Simon possesses. Today we might not think that people are swayed by magic. Like how the Oxford Bible Dictionary puts it. It says the power of apparently influencing. This is how it defines magic. The power of apparently influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. It can also be defined as the art of producing a desired effect or result through the use of incandation or repetition or various other techniques that presumably assure human control of supernatural agencies or the forces of nature. We, we are influenced by magic, aren't we? We're influenced by magical ways, mystical ways of thinking, as if, if we repeat a certain prayer a certain number of times, we say a prayer a certain way, that somehow we can influence God or the supernatural. That's, that's a magical way of thinking. We can think that by practicing sacraments in a certain way, that God ha- is somehow more pleased with us. We can, we can think that if we, if we use a certain liturgy, a certain way of acting or doing, if we just have enough quiet times in the morning, if we have one every day, then God will be pleased with us. And that's a, a real a magical way of thinking in the sense that we're assuming that we can control 
how God views us by how we perform and what we do. Other people are swayed by those with charismatic and convincing personalities. They persuade people with verbal manipulation of the facts, and they appear to be somebody they really aren't are for their own gain. Often, politicians and public figures deceive, disillusion. Other people are swayed by folks like the Dalai Lama, mystics who are deceptive. They sound good, but they're really empty. Others pay attention to people who claim to be Christians yet preach a false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity that if you only say certain things certain ways enough, if you only believe enough, then God will make you healthy and wealthy. And that's really a form of magical or mystical thinking. There's celebrity teachers out there who mislead many by taking in so-called honorariums of $125,000 to speak. We read about that last week. They're teaching a counterfeit gospel, a magical or mystical gospel says that you can be great like me, you can be powerful and rich and famous like me if you only believe God in a certain way and and do things like this. The good news that Philip had is relevant for us today as well. It's the same powerful good news that it's more powerful than any kind of mystical or magical threat. Luke wrote about this account because he wanted the church to see that that good news, the message that they carried, was more powerful than any other message out there, more powerful than any other religion that they faced. And really, the Samaritans really practiced a different kind of religion. They created their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They didn't accept anything but the first five books of the Bible, and they ignored the rest of the Old Testament. And they really were seen as heretics because they essentially were practicing a different faith. So we encounter people who practice a faith that sounds like a Christian faith, that sounds good, that has some of the content of truth and Maybe, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam or something like that. We don't need to be intimidated. We have the good news that is the power of God. The good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, it brings freedom and deliverance and true healing. And that's what we see happening in this passage. We don't have to be intimidated or afraid of those magical or mystical teachers who, who seem powerful and persuasive. The good news is more powerful than anything mystical. Verse 12, look down in your Bibles. It says that, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, the nature of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, despite the fact they'd been led astray for many years, watching all these false signs and wonders. When they heard the good news, they believed and were baptized. They were made alive in Jesus Christ. It's the good news. It's the news that Jesus is ruling. What did he preach? He preached and says the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. What is the good news that Philip preached that that we have the privilege of taking out? It's the good news that Jesus is reigning and ruling over all things despite what it seems like. Remember the context again. They've been scattered because of a great persecution and yet he's preaching the rule and reign of God. It's the good news that Jesus brings true deliverance and freedom and hope and peace and that that God loves us because he sees us as having the merit of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that should excite us, that should 
enliven us. The good news that they would have heard is that we don't need to fear punishment or death because Jesus took our punishment and death for us to have new life. The good news of the kingdom is that Jesus came to save us from our guilty consciences as was mentioned this morning. He came to free us from something we could never free ourselves from. And if you're here, you, we all know that we're guilty at least to some degree. But the message of Jesus brings hope because he took all our guilt. That's the power of the good news. The good news is we don't ever have to be alone if you're feeling lonely here today. Because if you put your trust in Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit to reside in us. And he'll never leave us even to the end. Even if you never find a human soulmate. Or if your spouse dies. Or if you feel alone. The good news, the power of the good news is that you will never be alone. He will always be with you. He'll never forsake you. The good news is that he came to deliver people from selfishness. Maybe you're struggling this morning with being selfish or being impatient or unkind. The good news is Jesus came to deliver people like me from selfishness because God chose me and you and has taken care of what's most important so that we can be freed from having to live for ourselves, knowing that Jesus has already lived for us and died for us so we don't need to live selfish lives concerned about ourselves, trying to preserve something because Jesus has already preserved us in him. At the heart, the good news about Jesus is powerful news. It's news that we carry that that's meant to make us passionate to spread the good news. Luke tells us in, in verse 13, he says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It says that Simon saw these great miracles, and he was Amazed. He was amazed because he knew that they were not tricks. You see, Simon was a great magician, and he would have known, he would have understood what illusion looked like, and he, he can spot the real thing. A few years ago, there was a TV miniseries called Magic's Biggest Secrets Revealed. I don't know if you ever got to wear, watch this show, and there's this guy with this funny-looking mask because he said he was afraid of the magicians finding out who he was. And, but he exposed all these magical tricks and secrets and and, and he trained people how to discern and see false things by watching his show and, and see sleight of hand and to, to see that it was all illusion. Simon was a guy who would have easily been able to spot the fake. And yet he's amazed when he sees the signs and wonders that are performed because he knows they're real. And he knows that they're good and they're different than the signs and wonders he performed. He was amazed, and it says he believed, but I wonder what kind of belief that was. We're going to take a look at that later on. How can Simon believe, and yet we hear him being rebuked by Peter? But right now we need to see that the gospel is not only more powerful than any mystical threat, the good news of Jesus, it's more powerful than any ethnic divide, too. See, where are they? They're in Samaria. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. That's a gross understatement. Verse 14 to 16 says, When the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. 
I want you to think for a moment, by the way, who, who, who they're sending. They're sending Peter, but they're sending John. Do you remember James and John? They're with Jesus in the book of Luke. And they went to a town in Samaria. Who knows if it was this town or not. But they went to a town in Samaria, and they didn't receive Jesus. And so James and John, they turn to Jesus and indignantly say, Jesus, do you want us to like call down fire on them and kill them? Can we wipe them all out? This is John. <laughs> the irony here. God's got a sense of humor. He sends John to instead of kill them, to bring new life, to, to love them. This is the good news transforming the apostles too. So why did Peter and John go to Samaria? If, if you wonder why, why did the apostles go there? They didn't go everywhere the gospel was preached. But I, I believe they went there to ensure the message that was being preached was probably faithful, fully expecting to endorse the work there. In any case, the presence there really would have served to endorse Philip's ministry, to bolster him, to say, yes, we agree with what Philip's doing and, and preaching and saying. But it really, I think the primary reason why we see this unique occurrence where, where they believe and are baptized, but yet they don't receive the Holy Spirit. That's very unique, by the way, in Scripture. That's not a normal thing in, in in the Bible, in the New Testament, normatively, we, re- we believe and we receive the Holy Spirit. We're born again by the Holy Spirit. The, the infilling of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. And yet there's, there are three occasions where it doesn't seem to happen. And in each place, it's where the gospel is going into an unreached area or breaking new ground. And so in this area, what we see is that the gospel, the good news, is going to, to break down the barriers of ethnic divide, to go into a new area that they would have doubted that they should have gone into. The Samaritans, they were hated by the Jews in general. They were descendants of the Jews. They'd been carried away into Assyria, the, the northern kingdom. For those who are, are history buffs, who know a little bit about the history of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they were carried off into Assyria. They, they, the Assyrians tried to dilute the population, so they sent other Assyrians back to the, the northern area of Israel to populate that area. The Jews who came back, they intermarried both in Assyria and when they came back, and, and they, were, they were defiled. Because if you remember in the Old Testament, it was, it was not permissible for Jews to intermarry with those of other nations and races, and, and yet they did that in the area of Samaria. They were despised for mixing with other races and they were looked down as being unfaithful because they rejected the, the rest of the Old Testament. They rejected the temple worship, which was really the only place where they could be absolved of their sins and had their sins atoned for. And they erected their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They were heretics. They were half-breeds in the minds of the Jews. Some rabbis taught that to eat with the Samaritan, it was like defiling oneself by eating pork. They, they, they taught that their daughters were unclean and the Jewish people could not mix with them. They weren't seen as completely Gentile, but they weren't Jewish either. They were kind of a half step. And so we see this is a very unique time. Those that the apostles themselves had struggled with liking and wanted to call down fire on. Now Jesus brings the apostles and I believe the Holy Spirit delayed filling the believers in this case until the apostles showed up, not because the news that Philip preached was insufficient, where apostles are necessary for salvation and the giving of the Spirit, 
But it, it was because God wanted everyone to see that these Samaritans, these half-breeds, these heretics, this, this hated race, this hated nation, it was, it, was, it was accepted by God because of the good news. He wanted to break down the ethnic divide between the Jews and Samaritans. And so he says, you know what, I'm going I'm to wait to pour my spirit out on, on those who have been made new because I want it to be clear that they are united with the church in Jerusalem. I want that to be so clear, I'm going to send the apostles there and wait to pour out the Spirit until then so that everyone will know that the apostles' faith, the good news the apostles preach is the same good news the Samaritans received, and it's the same Holy Spirit. And because the good news tears down ethnic divides. It tears down every wall of separation. God wanted to make sure that that everyone knew they were part of the body of Christ. That Jesus is for every tongue and tribe and nation and ethnicity. Initially in the spread of the gospel outside of Jerusalem, here in Acts 10 and again in Acts 19, each of the times the gospel was carried out outside of the region of Israel to Samaritans, then Greeks, and then to, and then to the rest of the known world. It was witnessed by the apostles so that everyone would be clear that that this good news was, was authorized for all people. This good news was the good news for all of mankind, not just for the Jews. And God was being merciful to confirm that this gospel given to the Samaritans is, is the same for everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. We need to see this because we're so often afraid. If we're honest with ourselves, if you're honest with yourself this morning, the reason why we're not experiencing as much diversity in our congregation is because I think at times we're intimidated. I think at times we're afraid we can segregate and cloister ourselves into our own ethnic communities. And we need to see that the good news, it breaks down any ethnic divide. And it's for all kinds of people. We can so often harbor suspicion or outright racist stereotypes that that keep us from carrying the gospel message to people who don't look like us or don't seem like us or who, in your heart, you might have to admit and confess that you look down on. wonder how John (laughs) felt as he's going. He had to have experienced a little bit of conviction as he's going and realizing, Jesus corrected me, but oh, I was racist, I was, I was prejudiced. And yet this good news is my hope. It's the same hope for all of those of any ethnicity. And the good news, it tears down any divide. We're, we're called to carry the gospel across all ethnic boundaries, across our own sinful divides, and to repent of those prejudices and, and to carry the good news to, to people who aren't like us. Why? Because... The reason why we have the good news today, think about it for a moment, it was because a bunch of Middle Eastern guys were so affected by the good news and the love of Jesus Christ that they carried that good news out to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then that good news has been carried to us. Most of us here are not ethnically Jewish. We're the Gentiles. We're the hated ones. And aren't you grateful as someone carried the good news to you. You see, you didn't look like 
the, the people in this story. <laughs> At least most of us didn't, unless I get a really good tan and I grow my beard really long. Um, went to Israel back in, in the 90s and they would speak Hebrew to me a lot because I had a tan and it was funny. Um, but most of us don't look like this, like the men here did. And you, you see, they were so affected by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they carried that good news out so that every tongue and tribe and nation might know the power of the good news to transform all of our lives. The gospel is not some Western thing. It's not an American thing. It's not even a, a cultural thing. It's not a, a white or black. It's, it's, it's indiscriminate. It's the good news for all of mankind. We see next that the Simon, he saw the power of the good news in the giving of the Spirit, and he wanted to buy it. I'm just surprised that Peter didn't turn and say, um, look at the door, the men are here to carry you out, like Ananias and Sapphira. And Luke wants to see a third reason why we can have confidence in this, this message that we're called to spread. And, and the third reason we can have confidence in this message is that the good news of Jesus, it's a free gift of God. That's good news. It's a free gift. It's not something we're to buy. It's not something we use for our own selfish gain. And that's really good news because we didn't have to buy it from anyone else either. We don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. That's really good news. Why? Because in those days when you really are aware that you don't deserve the good news, you can have confidence that it's a free gift from God. And not only are you not able to earn it, you can't earn it, and you didn't, and you never have to. Somehow, it must have been externally evident that they had received the Holy Spirit. Wish we had time to go into that, really, and think about when, when people... In the New Testament, when they were born again and they received the Spirit, in the book of Acts especially, there was always some evidence. It was evident to people around them. Somehow, somehow Simon saw that they had received the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't see the physical Holy Spirit descending, but somehow he saw some change occur. Maybe that was extreme joy. Maybe that was they spoke in another languages or prophesied. We don't know why or how, but we do know that there was some external manifestation of some sort and it was clear to Simon, and it was clear that it was the power of God because Simon asked to buy it. He knows it's something that can't be manifest or manufactured by humanity. He knows it's not something he can kind of generate on his own, and so he wants to buy, and he's asking for a special favor to buy the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit on whoever he wanted. This, is, this would have been the practice of magicians, and it still is today, actually. Um, even big acts, they'll pay somebody else to come up with magic tricks, in fresh material, they'll buy the rights to that illusion so that they in turn can profit and make money off of what they've bought. Simon's doing the same thing that he would have done in his own profession. He would, he would have tried buy things to, to make himself more powerful. It's like buying the franchise on the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. Just like speakers today, no one has the corner on the market of the good news. No one has the corner on the market of hearing from God and having the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit's been given to all who believe. And that's really good news that He's been given freely. Simon clearly doesn't understand that the Holy Spirit's been given by God as a gift and that He's given by the sovereign hand of God. 
He wants to buy the privilege. And then, and then from Peter's reaction, we, we can tell that it's because he wanted power for himself. He wanted not to be a blessing to other people, but because he wanted to have the same God-given power the apostles had. And today, people can often behave that way towards the good news. Simon's wanted to capture his, recapture his fame, his notoriety, maybe even seek profit from the Holy Spirit because his fame and notoriety had gone away when they saw the true power of God. And he wants to use the Holy Spirit for his own personal selfish gain. But that's not how God works. You see, God doesn't save us so that we can profit. He doesn't He doesn't give us the Holy Spirit so that we can charge other people for it in motivational seminars. The Holy Spirit is is given to draw men to Christ, not to draw people to other men. So Simon's rebuke. Look down in your Bibles in verse 20. It says, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now substitute money there in our day for you thought you could obtain the gift of God by your own works, by, by some kind of earning good news is that there is no kind of earning that attains the free gift of the Holy Spirit, the free gift of God. That's really good for us because we would falter, we would lack confidence, we would lack hope if we had thought that somehow we had secured God's favor because there's no way you can ever be consistent enough to to perfectly secure God's favor all the time. And so the good news is that we can't and don't. The gospel, the good news is a, it's, a, it's a free gift from God. Simon's tried to assure he has human control of when God's spirit is given. And God doesn't allow any man to control him. And so Peter rebukes him, but he still holds out hope for his wicked heart. And, heart. and then we see really in this, Luke gives us a fourth reason, a fourth and final reason why we can have confidence in the message that we're called to spread. And it's that the good news of Jesus holds out hope for all wicked hearts. You see, Peter accurately diagnoses Simon's heart, but he doesn't leave him hopeless. He still holds out hope for his wicked heart. In verse 21, Peter says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Those are damning words. What he's saying is that you have no part in this good news. You have no part in the receiving and giving of the Holy Spirit because your heart is not right before God. Peter is making a a moral declaration there. He's saying, by God, and now this is something that you only see the apostles doing, by, by revelation from God, Peter is seeing that his heart is not right with God and also by the fruit that he demonstrated too. Earlier though, this is confusing, isn't it? Because earlier it says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. What in the world's going on here? How can it say that the people of Samaria believed, baptized, received the Holy Spirit? We don't see Simon receiving the Holy Spirit. We see, though, he, was, he believed and he was baptized. But he wasn't morally right before God, and Peter is saying he's doomed unless he repents. And I think this, this verse serves as a warning, too. In the midst of holding out hope, it should serve as a warning for those who know and agree with the truth and the good news about Jesus, but have not repented and renounced themselves and placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And I think we've all seen that. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and that's you, that you, you believe in Jesus, you've professed 
faith in him. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you walked the aisle when you were five or six. But your heart's not right with God. In areas like ours, many people can have knowledge about Jesus and believe that he's the son of God and yet have no true life in him and demonstrate that by the fruit of their lives that they've not renounced themselves and truly trusted in Christ. And that's what we see going on here with Simon. Simon's not a genuine convert. We know from early church fathers that um, he, he proved out that he was not a believer. Some can think that they, because they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle when you were a kid that they were saved and guaranteed a spot in heaven no matter how, how you've been living or how you're living now. This, this should serve as a warning, but it also should serve as holding out hope to you. It's not meant to make you feel false guilt. If you are a believer and you continue to sin, but you're, you're struggling against that sin, it's not meant to make you feel condemnation there. But if you're not aware of, a, of an evident struggle, if you're not aware of fruit in your life, you need to hear this warning, but you also need to hear the hope that's being held out to you. You see, Peter didn't immediately condemn Simon, and, and Simon was not immediately killed as Ananias and Sapphira were. He holds out hope of repentance. He holds out hope of forgiveness to him. And God holds out hope of repentance and forgiveness for all who claim belief in him but have wicked hearts still. After all, all of us in the room have hearts that at one time were steeped in wickedness. And yet God in his mercy held out hope and forgiveness. The idea that someone can believe in Jesus and not be truly saved is not a foreign idea to Luke. In Luke 8.13, Luke's telling, retelling a parable that Jesus gave, and Jesus himself is talking about different kinds of soil and how the seed fell on different kinds of ground. And he says in Luke 13, speaking of rocky type of soil, 8.13 says, And the ones... On the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Simon was tested here. He was tested because his fame, his fortune had gone away, and he was tested. He believed, but in time of testing, he fell away and revealed that he truly had not been made alive in Christ. Simon was like rocky soil. He knew this good news to be true and believed it, but was tempted and tested, and he demonstrated in the story that he fell away. Maybe he was tempted because he saw that his livelihood was being taken away from him, and he was being threatened that his reputation would have suffered. He would have been revealed to be not so great, Simon. His magic tricks, even his potential powerful sorcery, would have been revealed as weak in comparison to the power of God. And so how would he make his living any longer? How would he influence people? People would have seen that they didn't need Simon anymore. They had the Holy Spirit, but they wouldn't have followed him, and they wouldn't have supported him, and, and his heart was not right. But yet, in the midst of that, there's still hope held out for Simon. After his heart's revealed to be wicked, look at what Peter says next. Look in verse 22. It says, repent therefore. He says, Simon, you, you're, you're not a believer. You have no lot. You have no part in this. You're still wicked in your heart. Yet, he says, repent of this 
of this wickedness of yours, and in verse 22, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And Peter is saying, Simon, your heart's been revealed. It's not the external actions. You look like you're reformed on the outside. Your heart's been revealed. He says, pray that the Lord would forgive the intent of your heart. He holds out hope to Simon still. The very beginning of the spread of Christianity, we can, we can see this warning against a shallow belief and yet a hope of repentance extended. And this is very relevant for us today. We, we, should, we should hear a warning against shallow belief. If, if you are not seeing an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, if you are not passionate for Christ and desiring Him, you need to hear a warning here. But you need to hear hope. Because in the midst of someone who Peter has been revealed to that he is not a Christian and that he is truly wicked, Peter still holds out hope. He says, pray that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He's not saying that it's not possible. He's saying if it's possible, if it's possible that you would turn to God. And so we have hope that the good news, the good news is, is able to change. The good news is hope for all of us who have wicked hearts. And his hope of forgiveness is related to a turning from the intent of our hearts. This is not about externalities. This is not about performing certain rituals. This is not about dressing a certain way, acting a certain way, talking in Christianese. This is about a turning of the intent of our hearts from living for ourselves and turning to him. And then look in verse 25. Simon's heart is laid bare. I'm in verse 23, I apologize. Peter explains that Simon was bitter and gripped in sin. He says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter saw rightly that Simon was not motivated aright by the good news. He was still in bondage to his sin. He was driven by bitterness. Maybe he was bitter because of the truth that the people didn't follow him any longer. He was offended because the apostles had taken his livelihood. And it says that Simon was in the gall of bitterness. You may not be familiar with that word gall. It's actually the secretion of of bile from the liver. In the Old Testament, it's often referred to as the venom of snakes or the oil of wormwood. It's a poisonous, harmful substance. And so he's saying, Simon, you're wallowing in this poisonous, venomous stuff of bitterness. And you're giving evidence that your heart's not right by that. Maybe he justified his bitterness because his power and his fame had been taken away from him. But couple that with him being the bond of iniquity, he was wallowing in unrepentant bitterness. It was evidence that he was not right with God. And then Peter doesn't give him a hall pass, does he? He doesn't say, Simon, I get it, I understand. I'm so sorry that we took your livelihood, Simon. I understand that we, you're no longer famous. And Simon, I understand that you're not any powerful anymore and Simon, I get it. I understand that you're bitter. I get that. You know, but take your time. Peter doesn't give him any kind of hall pass. He doesn't give him empathy with his bitterness. He says, repent. Just as Scripture calls all bitter people to repent. Look in Hebrews 12, 15. We have a Scripture for you in the overheads. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Why is Peter seeing this as evidence 
of a serious problem in Simon's life? Well, Hebrews shows it to us. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. No one fails to obtain the grace of God? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Peter takes this pretty seriously when he sees that Simon's in the gall of bitterness. And we're shown that our hearts are bitter like Simon was bitter. And by the way, all of us can be tempted from time to time. That's not what it's talking about, saying wallowing in this. But Hebrews warns us against that we can fail to obtain the grace of God and be defiled. At best, if you're a believer and you're bitter, it's grieving to the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 4.30 tells us, by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. But Peter still holds out hope to Simon. And God still holds out hope to us that we can put away and forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. In Simon's case, whatever the case was, no matter how much justified his bitterness may have seemed, Peter wants to make it clear he needs to repent and pray that God would forgive him. And there's hope for any here who are bitter or who resent God this morning. There's hope for all who are trapped in sin who were in the bond of sin, iniquity, as Simon was. There's hope if you're stuck in bitterness that God will forgive you like he's forgiven all of us here who are Christians, not based on our own merit. You see, none of us is better than anyone else here. We have the best news that we place our faith and trust in. But no one can claim to be better. No one can claim to be superior. No one can claim to not be in need of this good news that that's the power of God over any threat. This good news that, that transforms. This, this good news that makes us alive. This, this good news that tears down ethnic divide. This good news that extends hope to those who are stuck in sin and bitterness. Sadly, we, we see that Simon didn't repent. Peter said, pray to God, he'd forgive you. How does Simon respond? He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He gives this half-hearted, kind of awful response, and he says, Simon answered Peter, says, you pray to the Lord for me, that nothing of what you say may come upon me. He's still being selfish. He's not actually asking God to forgive him. He's not praying to the Lord. He's not repenting. He's saying, well, Peter, if what you say is true, then, you know, I'm still concerned about myself. Would you pray to the Lord so that none of these bad things happen to me? He's still not convicted. But even then, I think hope was still held out to Simon. The account ends open-endedly, maybe so that the reader, it's a very abrupt way. Luke has this habit of ending accounts abruptly like this, leaving things open-ended so that we think. You see, the Bible is not encouraging people to be thoughtless. It's encouraging us to think, to, to muse upon, to, to think about what are the implications of this. And it ends open-endedly so that the reader can think about maybe how Simon should have responded, and maybe the reader can ponder themselves the correct response and how the reader can see this, this good news and receive the hope that's held out. There's a true spiritual power that's not counterfeit that God has given us in the good news, and he often accompanies that with signs and wonders. Although signs and wonders are not assurance that that is the truth, we can be sure that the good news accompanied with signs and wonders is, is affirmation by God that His good news is powerful. 
and there's true spiritual power that we don't have to be intimidated by any foe. We don't have to be intimidated by anyone we confront. Maybe you have not been sharing this good news and spreading the good news because you're intimidated by what people around you might think about you or maybe you're intimidated that your argument won't be good enough or that you won't be wise enough or you won't have the right words or you won't be able to say it the right way or you won't know how to answer those Jehovah's Witnesses so you, um, you lie. It's funny, I had a friend, he's a pastor and uh, he just admitted the other day, he's like, you know, um, sometimes I just don't want to deal with people who come to my door and I, I won't tell them the truth. He had a, not related to religion at all, but he had a, uh, a meat salesman, a door-to-door meat salesman come to his door and he said, no, no, no I'm vegetarian. <laughs> he's so not vegetarian. Um, he's vegetarian if that means eating animals that eat vegetables, then yeah, he's vegetarian. But um, we can be tempted to lie to make things up because we're, we're concerned we might not have the right words. And I think that's because we forget passages like this that teach us that We've been given the good news that's more powerful than any threat, than any mysticism, any religion out there. You don't have to be afraid to engage a a Muslim talking about Jesus Christ. You have the power of God for salvation. You don't have to be intimidated when somebody knocks on your door. You don't have to be intimidated when you go and visit your neighbors and you say, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself to you and and make brownies for you and and show you the love of God in a practical way. And hey, we're a Christian. I don't know if there's anything I can pray for you about. If you, if you have any questions, I want to talk about God someday. I'd love to have you over and let's, let's talk. Or just to be friends with somebody. You don't have to be intimidated in spreading this, this word about Jesus Christ. Because it's powerful. You don't have to be intimidated by going up to people who don't look like you, act like you, talk like you. Because the good news is breaks down any ethnic divide. And you don't have to be timid because you have this good news of hope. And that's what the world needs. It's what we need. Overarching message, this good news is freely given to those of any ethnicity. And it requires a response from our hearts, turning from trusting ourselves and trusting Christ alone. And when we do that, He forgives us and makes us new and gives us the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for accounts like this that are instructive for us. That are, thank you that you, you teach us in ways that we can understand. You teach us by example. You teach us by showing us. You teach us by telling stories of what happens so that we can see what does the good news look like. And that you give us confidence in you through these accounts. And Lord, I pray that we would have an increased confidence as a church to carry, to spread this good news. This message that we've been given, Lord. And God, I pray that you would give us all fresh hope, fresh passion, and love and affection for you, Jesus. You are the good news. You came to seek and save us who are lost. You came to redeem us, to forgive us, to make us one with God. God, restore to us the joy of our salvation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please go ahead and stand. If you stand, I'd like to go ahead and ask those who are um, leaving to go away to school. If we can, if you can have you come up and the leaders in the church, if you'll go ahead and come forward too.